Morning. The Lord be with you. What's cool about things like we just did is, it may not be cool to you, but it's cool to me. Uh, There's a text in Ruth 2 that I was reading this last week, and recall that Ruth was written about a thousand years before Jesus, so about 3,000 years ago. And listen to what it says. Uh, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said to them, and also with you, they called back. I just love that. I just think, you know, it's like the liturgies of our lives. Hey, how you doing? Great. How you doing? But what we, we, we understand those are liturgies in our culture. And it's wonderful to participate in those kinds of things when we gather into sacred space in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which sort of maps out the human expression and sort of maps out the sanctity of our space. And so anyway, praise the Lord. Uh, let me briefly reference some shifts that are happening in our staff right now that I think you'll be delighted about. Uh, most of you are aware that Jonathan Martin left our team January 1, and uh, have, we have some holes to fill. Incidentally, uh, Jonathan began some Wednesday night meetings downtown called The Table with Ben and uh, uh, Noel Kilgore and, and Nicole Nordeman leading worship. I've heard it's a really sweet, rich time. And so you might want to check that out, find out more information from their Facebook pages. But we have a couple of folks coming to fill in to kind of help kind of spread what we're doing and, and uh, build on what we feel we need to do. One of them is Nate Binion. Nate came up and did the morning um, opening prayer. Nate, we love you. Where are you at? You're going to delight. Be a jo- He's a joy. He's been in ministry for over a dozen years. Uh, he landed in Tulsa a couple of years ago to help with the family business here. Here and his wife, he and his wife, Regina have been attending Sanctuary for about 18 months. And uh, he's actually one of the reasons we had such a successful Christmas Eve service. So if you like that, there are good things to come, right? (laughs) Uh, Paul Pano and his wife, Lissa, many of you remember him. You'll enjoy seeing him back around. He actually works for the Order of St. Anthony, which is an arm of the CEC, and uh, will be helping us to continue with our compliance issues as a CEC church. So good things are coming down the pike. Keep your ears on, okay? Amen. Uh, There's several interesting directions that we could go with our gospel text this morning. Uh, But the text covers the story that is called the Transfiguration of Christ. So this is Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, For centuries, the church has celebrated this Sunday, remembering this event. Uh, And I just wanted to read just the one text of the gospel message that directly points to it. It says in verse 2 of Matthew 17, There he was transfigured on this mountain. He was transfigured before them. Interesting word here. I'll share it with you in a second what it means or where it comes from. There he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. (laughs) And his clothes became white as the light. One of the gospels says, whiter than any launderer could have made it. (laughs) The word transfigured, uh, used to describe here, it it describes what Jesus went through. It's the Greek word metamorpho. Some of you can relate to what that word is. We get our English word metamorphosis from it. And it's the thing that happens to a caterpillar. When it turns into a butterfly, there's some sort of metamorphosis, that's metamorpho. Um, it literally means that which is on the inside comes to the outside. That which is hidden is suddenly seen. 
This is what happens to Jesus on the mountain that day. This is why John references in his gospel of the glory. It's called the glory of God. And he makes the statement in John 1, we have seen his glory. (laughs) We were there. (laughs) The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter never forgot it either. He brings it up in 2 Peter 1. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him, from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. That's what we just read on the mountain that he said. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He's referring to that, this story that we just read. It it completely recalibrated their minds about who Jesus is. It was this experience that helped these monotheistic people, you know, people who believed in just one God, one God. It helped them to understand that the oneness of God was not as simple as Judaism made it out to be. That Jesus was somehow human, but more. That Jesus was human, but in some way, he was God. Now, this created a real fracture in their thinking, and it took them a long time to figure this out. And the work of theology for a couple hundred years was to try to, how can this possibly be that the God who is one is still one and yet more than one? Right? Um. The story ties into the idea that we've been dealing with over the past few weeks as we have been celebrating Epiphany. Because Epiphany is that season that points to the claim that God wants to make himself known. That God wants to be seen. Uh, What is in Jesus here, his godness, his glory is clearly seen here. And that's why his face shone like the sun. That's why his clothes became as bright as light, or as white as light. Have you and I been there? <laughs> I'm sure you would have gone, whoa, what up, right? What's going on? Jesus is like shining. He said, he's it. Yeah, he's shining. <laughs> what strikes me about this story is not so much that Jesus put his glory on display. What sort of captures me about this story is that this very glory that they see in this moment, where his face shines like the sun and his clothing brights up, but this very glory was always present. But it was hidden. It, it's this, in this, this, this metamorpho, this idea that what's inside him comes out really implies that the brightness was in him all along even when it wasn't seen. He could, I mean, and, and you, it, it begs the question, how in the world could the brightness of the sun be inside and not be seen? If, if I pulled this Eucharistic table out of my pocket and you didn't see a bump, and all of a sudden I went, um, the amazement wouldn't be at the table. The amazement would be, how in the world did you have that in your pocket and us not see it? The amazement would be in the hiddenness of something so big. I'd like to suggest that the miracle of hiding in this story is actually more profound than the miracle of revealing. 
Which would mean that God's hiddenness is actually more miraculous than God's appearing. I mean, think about this just a minute. I mean, how could the creator of the universe, who is all-powerful, who holds all things together, be with us and for us, and we not be overwhelmed by him? I mean, the biblical claim is that God lives in our hearts. That we're actually the temples of the Holy Spirit, little porta temples. We're the temples of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) How is it possible that we do not feel him all the time? I mean, I'm saying that our inability to feel him, what if that's more of a miracle than if we were falling out under the power, constantly drooling on the ground, speaking in tongues and seeing the future while we're stuck in a trance? (laughs) What if the most powerful thing about our faith is that we don't feel him a lot of the time? I mean, imagine standing on a beach and you look up and there's this 500-foot wave shooting at you and you know there's nothing you can do and you just sort of stand there and it hits you. And instead of getting swept up in the wave, it goes by you and you're still standing there and there's, you're bone dry except for one drop on your forehead. What would you say? It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. How could something so massive hit me and me just be dry? What if the miracle is that almighty God, the God of power and might and strength and love and joy and peace can actually reside in your physical body and you live as though he's not even there? What if that is the miracle? So that if you come up to me and say, how do you even feel God? We should say, wow! (laughs) Holy cow, praise God! If we actually believed the gospel, that would be its necessary conclusion. Because the text claims that he is in us. But the story on the Mount of Transfiguration shows us is that God is the kind of God that likes to make himself known. He loves to be obvious and then not. Which means sometimes you see him, sometimes you don't. Let me remind you one of the texts we've, been used, we've used repeatedly in Epiphany. This is out of uh, if, uh, Isaiah 45. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, a God, O God and Savior of Israel. You are a God who hides himself. As a charismatic Pentecostal evangelical, it was, it was our belief that, that God wanted to be in the open all the time, in manifestation everywhere. Manifestation comes from a Latin word that means the dancing hand. And we just wanted his hand dancing all the time. That's what we thought glory was. And if he wasn't, it was because we weren't using our faith enough or praying hard enough. But what if that isn't true? I mean, what if God just likes to hide? And and what if um, 
something happens in us when he hides that's essential to us. 1 Samuel 3, 1, the boy Samuel was ministering before the Lord under Eli and watch, in those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. In Genesis 15, God had come in direct contact with Abraham, the father of our faith. How cool is that? And he says to him in in Genesis 15, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. I mean, this is direct God time. And watch, look what God does to him. Look what God says to him. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord started speaking to him. Here's what he said. Know for certain that your descendants will be, a, will be strangers in a country, not their own. For they will be enslaved and they will be mistreated 400 years. Wait. I mean, can we do like the mistreatment gig for about six to eight months? Can we negotiate this? Right? We're Americans. We need to see this happen pretty. I mean, can't we just get on with it, right? Get the deal done. 400 years, twice as long as the age of our nation. God fell into silence. He knew he would. He planned it. He fell into silence and his people were enslaved for 400 years, yet God was there hiding He was not on parade for 400 years. Then Mo, Moses. (laughs) And then God came on parade. If this is a pattern for God's behavior, then there's some massive implications for those of us who are evangelical and charismatic and Pentecostal. We want open revival. We want answered prayer. We want a manifested presence. We want to be deeply moved and caught up in an infatuation with the holy. We love that all the time. We only want God to be seen. But what if that is to miss the true nature of God? What if a revivalist center actually boxes God in Experience tells us that God is much more likely to be hidden and silent and dwelling in obscurity in our lives than out in the open. And yet most of the time I felt guilty about about that. The story of Jesus' transfiguration only happened once in his life that we know of. Only once. In his whole life. I'm not saying we shouldn't contend for miracles or fight to enter the tangible presence. Oh my goodness, we should, we do, I do. I say, God, I want to feel you. I want to feel you now. And I run at him with my heart. I love the tangible presence of God. I want the manifestations of stuff. But I don't think he is with us that way most of the time. And I'm suggesting we should not just seek his open glory. We should, but we should also seek his hidden glory. 
We should be okay with his silence, with his obscurity. We should not think of feelings of piety and awe and miracles are the only evidences of his presence. Jesus' glory was as present in him when he, before he stepped foot on that mountain as it was when they saw his face shining like the sun. His glory was as present in him when he was asleep in that boat during the storm as it was when he was of the, in that moment on that mountain. The same glory was present, it just wasn't seen. Jesus' glory was as real when he was hanging on the cross and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That glory was in him. It was as real in him as it was when it was seen on that mountain. I'm not sure we really understand the ways of God all that much. His way is both what theologians call imminent and transcendent. Imminence means that it's now there's a perceptible presence. I love it sometimes when we're singing, I go, <gasps> or sometimes in the preaching moment, I'll feel his presence. There's different spaces in prayer sometimes. I'll go, oh, 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 we just found the spout where the glory comes out. All right? Dude, I love that. I want to slap somebody when I feel that. I love it. I got the, I got the Holy Ghost longings. I'm not giving up being a Pentecostal or charismatic. And I've got the evangelical impulse. I want people to taste God. I want people to cross the threshold of faith. I want those that don't know him, have never experienced him, to experience the joy of forgiveness and grace in their lives. Hot diggity dog. Or praise the Lord, whatever you want. But his transcendence is the place where there is no way you can grasp the glory that's present. It's beyond us. It's illusory. It's hidden. The Bible describes God as being intimately with us and in us. And yet the same Bible describes God as elusive, unknowable, and distant. That he is a God who's not very knowable to us. That most of his knowledge dwells in unknowing. In Romans 11, we see texts like Paul saying, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths. He can't trace them. He's untraceable. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? The God we serve is sometimes seen and sometimes not. Now you see him, now you don't. After the resurrection, Jesus was walking with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the text says in Luke 24, as they walked or talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, came up and walked along with them. And what? They were kept from recognizing him. Who do you think did that? Jesus, here's a question. How often do you think he's walking with you and he purposely and intentionally keeps you from recognizing him? What if this is the God we serve? What if this is his way? 
Remember, this is a God who said he would be with us everywhere at all times. And yet, we all recognize, if we're honest, that he tucks away so deeply that he's imperceptible and silent most of the time. God may permeate everything, but he's not the same as everything. He transcends things. He is imminent, which is to say closer than our breath. But he's also completely beyond us, which is why he inhabits mystery and unknowability. Most of the universe, when we look into it, scientists tells us, tell us, is dark matter. We look up, we see stars. We look up and we see planets. But most of the universe isn't stars and planets. They're all so distant and separated. Most of the universe is dark matter. What if most of God dwells in darkness? In theology, we call it apophatic theology versus cataphatic theology. I bet you wanted to know that now. <laughs> praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. <laughs> cataphatic means the stuff you can say about God that you can understand. Apophatic means it's the stuff we just cannot know. God is mostly unknowable because he's truly other. What if this is God? What if he mostly dwells in imperceptible darkness? This is the paradox we see in Moses when he approaches the burning bush. And as he's coming close, God says to him, Moses, come closer, but take off your shoes. So Moses takes off his shoes and he starts to come closer. And right about as he's getting closer to it, God says to him, stop right there. Don't come any closer. Which is it? Come closer. Don't come any closer. Come closer. I want to be intimate with you. Don't come any closer. You cannot be where I am here exactly. This is our story. I mean, God says, come, I'm right here. Okay, stop there. I'm in a place beyond you, a place you cannot come, but I'm here. It's an apparent contradiction. And the scriptures carry this constant tension between his closeness and his distance from us. So which is it? Is God close or is God far? The answer is both. So how do we live into this paradox? This is why I want to land this. What does that mean for you, evangelical? charismatic, Pentecostal. What does that mean for you, person who's just trying to figure out what God's like and maybe still trying to figure out if you have faith? What does it mean for you? I think what it means is that we have to live into this paradox in two ways. One, we have to be God chasers. We, we, have, to, we have to seek God's open glory because he is in us. And the scripture says, if we seek him, we will find him. So get on with the game. Seek, seek, seek. If you seek me with all your heart, get some heart. There's one place in, te in the text that says, says, you haven't found me because you have not wearied yourself. Have you wearied yourself to seek God? Weary yourself. Run it. Be a God seeker. Look for those mountaintop experiences. Come when we're singing songs. Don't let them be songs. You lean into them. Worship when we say the prayers. Throw your heart into them. You might just get splashed by God. Because he loves to come out. Fight to have a revival in your heart. But recognize that most of your life will not be lived out in that place. <laughs> that God usually is obscure and usually silent. And as much as we are committed as charismatics and evangelicals to a revivalist expression, 
We must be committed to seeking God in his transcendence and hiddenness. And let it be that. What do I mean by that? There are some things we can do that we can seek him when we're in the empty, distant places. Not just in the amazing chorus that lifts us emotionally, but I'm talking about the places where we feel he isn't there. And in those moments where we feel he isn't there, we just simply say to him, I know that I don't feel like you're here, but I know you're really here. God is present when he seems distant. God is present in his transcendence as much as he's present in his imminence. Think of the tyranny of your mundane, boring, everyday life. Right? Truth is, God seems distant in the mundane. So seek him there. Think about the times when you're being sorely tempted to be massively stupid. Doesn't God seem distant right there? Sure he does, but he's still right there. The text says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has seized you. What a great language. Just seized you. I was looking at you, you're just... <laughs> anyway, no temptation has seized you except what is common to people. And God is faithful. God is faithful. Everybody say, God is faithful. Thank you for three of you doing that. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide. He's right there. Even though it doesn't seem like he is. He'll provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Seek him there. We're just not used to looking for him in his transcendence. We're not used to looking for him in his hiddenness. But he is there that way. Now, let me say that. When you seek him in that, you, you may feel absolutely nothing. And he may seem absolutely silent. That means he's not there. It doesn't mean you shouldn't seek. God seems distant in disappointment. But he is with you in disappointment just like he's with you when your dreams come true. God may seem distant in suffering and sickness, but he is present there as much as if you're healed. Just in a different way. In healing, he's imminent and perceptible. In your sickness, he's transcendent and seemingly distant. But in both spaces, he is nonetheless there. God is with you. I believe we need to steer towards acknowledging him in those distant places. Not just in the revivalist spaces of worship and inspiration, but into places where we don't readily see him or feel him and it seems like he doesn't exist. I think God loves it that it feels like he doesn't exist. In fact, one of the things it says about him is that the thing that pleases him the most is faith. Because faith, it says in Hebrews, believes that he is. <laughs> Just believe that he is and that he rewards people who seek him. Right? I, I bet you all of you know the, the, the experience of losing things. Right? And you, when you lose things, you look for them. And you look and you look and you look and you look. You tear your house apart until some moment you decide it's not here. And the minute you believe it's not there, what do you do? Stop looking. Right? If, you, if you've absolutely exhausted all your spaces of looking and you decide it's, I don't know where it is, it's not here. I've lost it real. Then you stop seeking. You know why most of us don't seek God? I mean, truly, you may think you're not holy enough or you're not spiritual enough or you're, you're too sinful. It's none of those things. You know the only reason you don't seek him? Because you don't really believe he's in your life. 
Because if he was, things would be better. If he was in your marriage, you'd be getting along. So maybe he never was in the marriage. Maybe it wasn't God's will that you marry that person. Oh, yeah, now we're getting somewhere. Maybe God didn't want you on that job. Maybe that's why things are so ugly. God's not with you. You don't seek him. I don't seek him if I don't believe he is. You went home this afternoon and you found this little note on, the, on your table. It said, hi, Ed Gunger here. I'm hiding. <laughs> All right? You've got a couple choices. 911's one. The other is looking around for me. All right. Read the note. And the, you'd only keep looking until you believed it was a hoax. Then you'd stop. But if you really believed I was there, you'd keep seeking. You'd weary yourself seeking. Most of us don't believe he's in our lives. That's why we don't seek him. You're not a bad person. Well, yeah, you are. <laughs> but that, we're all in that same boat. <laughs> but it's just, you don't believe him when he said, I am with you. I live don't believe it. I believe we need to steer towards acknowledging him in those distant places. Again, not just those revivalist spaces of worship and inspiration, but in those places where we just don't sense him. We need to steer into his transcendence. Texts like this come to mind. Hosea 6, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to just acknowledge him. Not talking about feeling him. Just acknowledging him. I know you're with me. I don't feel anything. In fact, I feel sick. It feels like you've abandoned me. I think it's because of, I don't know why exactly. Maybe it's because I thought a bad thought last week. But for whatever reason, I don't think you're with me. But I know you're with me because I believe you're with me, so I acknowledge you. You don't try to feel him. You don't try to yield to him. You just acknowledge him. This is his eminent or his transcendence. And watch, as surely as the sun appears, he's going to show up. He will come to you like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. It may be a couple of months, but he will come. Hopefully it won't be a 400-year gig. <laughs> this is the why of Lent. Lent is the time to press in to acknowledge him. And it's in spaces that we don't really expect him to be. In our darkness, in our suffering, in our pain, in our loneliness, in our disappointment, in our frustration, in our emptiness. Oh, you know, all the good stuff. Lent starts this Wednesday night. Ash Wednesday. I wanted them to call it there's pain in the ash, but nobody would do it. They consider me a naughty bishop. <laughs> that night, we celebrate that we're going to die. How cool is that? I know. <laughs> Dr. Green's going to be speaking. Expect nothing. Because God inhabits that too. During this season, we steer into extra prayer. Those of you who can go on the line, we have the Friends of St. Anthony. We have these prayers that we pray. They're, they're not fun, extemporaneous 
prayer is that the goal of it's putting on your shouting clothes and grabbing your dancing shoes to dance in the spirit. This is scriptural praying, boring stuff. But God inhabits boring too. And in this season, we steer into fasting. What you fast from is a declaration that it has lost control over your life. Dare to ask, what controls me? Bonbons? Shopping online? Coffee? Chocolate? Now I'm getting real close to home here. Speeding? Now, I don't drive now most of the time because I live in Manhattan. Uh, but when I was living in Tulsa, oh my gosh, I love to speed. I lived to speed. Beat people. This <laughs> is just, just manifesting. I used to pray for myself. Man, come out of that devil. But anyway. <laughs> but I, I, in Lent, I would, I would drive the speed limit. Oh, 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 oh. It's like water on the Wicked Witch of the West. Those of you who remember that. Anyway, <laughs> so it's a really bad old joke, but praise the Lord, I'm an old guy. Skipping meals, here's one. Social media, are some of you controlled by the likes you long for? Fast it. TV, and, and, and then fast, in other words, do the things where there will be pain, where God will seem a million miles away. Do the things that when you do them, God will seem a million miles away. Now, why would you do that? Because God inhabits a million miles away too. Fasting reveals the hidden cracks of your life. You know, if you've got a, a pipe that you bought at the store, they'll say 280 pounds per square inch. You know why they know that that's true? Is because before they put it into the market, they put it on machines that test it and they put the pressure up. And sometimes when it says 280 pounds, they'll get up to 100, 150, 175, and all of a sudden, it'll blow. It'll show a, a, an unseen crack that wasn't there. See, some of us have 280 pounds written on our minds, but our souls can only bear 25 pounds per square inch. We are crackers or cracked up, or whatever. We're not, yeah, we're... <laughs> Fasting puts pressure and then reveals the broken spaces, the broken places. God will be there in the darkness that fasting brings, though you may not have a revivalist emotion. God is there. God inhabits broken places too. So here's what I'm saying. Transfiguration Sunday tells us that God is more often in the silence than he is in revival emotions or spiritual revelation, or insight, or answered prayer, God inhabits naked silence and seeming nothingness. So we must seek God by embracing the silence or the emptiness. We must enter the boring places or the painful, the places where we have unmet longings that scream in our ears, knowing that God likely will say nothing to us while we're seeking him there. We need to storm into the place where we really do feel, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet we still speak. I would suggest it's seeking God in those very places, those empty places that is at the heart of the gospel's call for us to take up our cross and follow him. We invite you to the darkness with us in this season. We, we realize that you will not feel him there necessarily. You might be surprised. Uh, but the reality is 
You need to enter it because that's who our God is. Lent will help you seek the God who sits in silence, emptiness, void, and darkness. You've heard this text. It's my last text. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Some of you look at that and you could say, that's my job. That's my relationship with my brother. That seems like that's my future. Formless, empty, darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Where was God? He was always there. But will you come to Him there? Will you dare to see Him in the place you cannot see anything at all? Creation expanded after that. This is what Lent's about. It's the most horrible time of the year. But it yields such wonderful stuff. It makes room for more creation and for a springtime of faith. I hope you Lent well this year. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.